You know, uh, I first before I start, I want to thank this committee, and I want to thank Bob for inviting me here. I'm sure, sure I've been having a lot of fun here. It's an inspiring meeting, and I am glad you asked me. I hope I can contribute something to our affair here. You know, when he's talking about this insurance man, this gag about the group insurance and everything, it reminded me of something that happened to me in my drinking days. Uh, early in my marriage career, my wife insisted that I take out an insurance policy for several thousand dollars, and I took this out in the Phoenix Mutual Life Insurance Company. And I paid the premiums right along until I got to drinking, and you know what happens then. And uh, I wouldn't be paying these premiums. They keep lapsing this policy all the time, and if there's anything insurance companies don't like is these fellas that have to keep lapsing policies, they have to keep bothering them about it, so... They made it as tough as possible for me, so every once in a while they would insist that I go down and take another examination. And they'd only reinstate the policy on the, on, on that basis. So, <clears throat> I'd go into this office and I could still see those two old maids they had working in there. And the way they'd stare at me every time I walk into that Keith building down on 17th and Euclid. And, uh, they had an equally grouch old doctor in there who was an examining physician. He had a little office next door, and so he used to hate to see me come, too, because someone was talking about reeking here in one of their talks. I was one of those reekers also, and I can remember one time he had me in there for a, the umpteenth examination, and he gave me a little bottle to take across the hall and get a specimen in. So I can still remember this. And I came back with this specimen, and he looked at it, he looked at me, and he cussed me out. He said, how in the world do you think I can ever take anything on that? There's no specific gravity to it. Can't you stop drinking at least one day before you come in here, see? He says, get the heck out of here and come back here day after tomorrow, and don't drink in the meantime. I want to take a specimen. Well, day after tomorrow is just like day before yesterday, you see. <laughs> so I had to have this done, so I took a friend with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he sent me out. Why, this is the job of St. Carol. You know, there's a climax to that story many years later. I, I'm a freak in insurance circles. Uh, after my wife had got rid of me, and years later, she still keeps that policy up. Years and years she's been paying it because she figured I could have croaked one of these days. I couldn't live. But I fooled her. I, I'm a great disappointment to some people. And... Uh, she living in California, still paying this policy. I might add that during all these lapsing of this policy deal, at one time, the specifications for rein reinstating this policy was that they doubled my rates. I'm on a, I'm on a D rating on this policy, which is just exactly 100% rate. I pay two premiums for this. So after about 10 years, that she's paying for this. She finally woke up one day. She's paying the premiums. I'm not paying it. Excuse me. I didn't mean to infer that I paid this. She does it. And as far as I know, she's still paying it. But uh, she wrote to the Phoenix Company and reminded them that she'd been paying a 
a D rating on this for all these years, and this guy isn't drinking anymore, and why can't they go back to a standard rate? So they take this thing up. This never happened before in insurance circles. A guy being a rummy like this and getting back to 10 years sober, they never heard of a thing like this. So the powers that be in their underwriting department, they decided that write me again. They wrote, now, if Mr. Snyder will go and take another examination, <laughs> when he passes, we may consider cutting the rate back to the standard. So I got that letter. I thought, well, I'll go down and do it. So I went down. This is ten years later. Remember this. Same old maids, only they're older and uglier. <laughs> and they're looking at me like I'm something from Mars when I walk in there, see? Because this time I don't reek, and I'm dressed up, and I have pants that match the coat and all that kind of business. So they send me over to this doctor, and he's the same old sour puss that he was before, and he's had ten years to get more sour. So he looks at me like it's something that came out of a cage when I go in there. And he looks me over and taps me here and there and takes the specimen and everything else. And then I get ready to go. He says, sit down. I want to talk to you. He says, I want to have a talk with you. I don't know what this old goat would want to talk to me about. So he sits there and his poor old guy, he just lets out his heart to me. He had a son who was an alcoholic, hopeless alcoholic. And he asked me if I could help him. So that's the way things go. I thought that would be a pretty good story to start off with. I'm not much of a storyteller. But uh, I've got a couple I want to tell you tonight before I get out of here, if I don't forget it. But first of all, uh, before I start this, I, uh, I don't know if he told you what my name is, but it's Clarence Snyder, and I live in St. Petersburg, Florida. And there's something I want to do before I commence this little dissertation of mine, which is only going to take about four hours. <laughs> I, I want to introduce some friends of mine. I am very happy... If there's some of my old friends from Cleveland are here, and I'm very happy to feel and to think that they would drive so many miles to be here with me tonight. And perhaps some of you folks have met these people, and the ones you haven't, I want you to have that privilege now. Now, first of all, I want these, the boys to stand up, as I call them. I want them to remain standing. The first chap I want to stand up is Harry Walker. Harry's living down here in Kentucky. And Harry is a chap from Cleveland. I happen to be his sponsor. Harry is over 21 years old in AA. Now, Harry... <laughs> Harry has been a terrific worker in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's worked with a lot of people. He's done a great job back in Cleveland with the Salvation Army. He's worked with prison groups. He's worked with all types of people. And he's done a great job. And he's doing a great job. Now, the next chap is Don Schilling. Don has been a regular member of AA for over 20 years. Sober. Consistent. <laughs> Don has done a great thing in his life. I remember when Don came in. He was single at the time. And he got in one of these hospitals. And he couldn't... Get out, get out of it. He didn't have a way to pay his way out. And he married one of the nurses. I'll introduce you to her later. It's the only way he could get out. Don has made something of his life. I'm glad to say that he's had 
the honor of finishing last year. He's now past master of his blue lodge, the Masonic Order. That's something for a fellow to be proud of. <clears throat> now, the next champ I want you to stand up is Charlie Sanders. Charlie is over 20 years old in AA, also sober. Charlie uh, has been secretary of a group on and off about 12 years, one group there. It seems that they can't get along without him as secretary. This is one of the greatest organizers AA has ever seen, this boy is. He really, when he puts on a meeting or a show, he puts it on. The annual meeting of his group in Cleveland is something that really I've never seen anything like. And any time you ever hear of a Brooklyn anniversary in Cleveland, try to get there. You'll see something. And that Charlie is the cause of that. Now you boys can sit down. I want to, then I want to introduce the gals who drove them away from drink. <laughs> First one, I want, like Grace Walker to stand up. This is Mrs. Harry Walker. Grace met a sister-in-law of mine, and that's how Harry got in. And you want to notice something about these three gals. Every one of them I met before I met the rummy. I wonder why that is. Yes, three, every one of them I met before I ever met the rummy. Now, uh, Grace, I happen to be Harry's sponsor. I'm also Charlie Sanders' sponsor. Now, the next one I'd like to stand up is Jimmy. This is the nurse that bailed this guy out of the... <laughs> Jimmy Schilling here used to be a nurse in one of our hospitals in Cleveland where it was taking care of alcoholics, and that's where she met Don. I don't know if she got him in a moment of weakness or he got her, one or the other. But anyway, they got, and they've been very happy for a long time. Now, Edna, Mrs. Sanders... <laughs> This I call the Jelly Queen. I lived with these folks for some time. After they came into AA, I was living over in a cheap boarding house. Uh, I remember my first time I ever met Edna. She and her daughter and son-in-law came over to see me and talked about Charlie. And uh, they were laying a trap for Charlie. <laughs> and eventually, I got so busy in that boarding house, and I had no more privacy than a goldfish, and things got so bad I had to move. I had to move out of my own place several times on account of these AA, the AA pressure at that time, and I came over and lived with them for quite a long time. I roomed with them. She makes the best jelly of anybody in Ohio. She does. Wonderful. Well, thanks, girls. I'm glad you all came. It does my heart good to see all of you. Well, it might be a little different than AA lead, but we, I just wanted to do that. Why, some people asked me to tell a couple stories about, these are true stories. These are experiences of some of these rummies whom I have met over the years. We got reminiscing about experiences and people we've met, and some of them thought these stories are funny. I don't know what's funny about them, but some of them thought they were funny. There's the first fellow I want to tell you about. The fellow, all these fellows out here and all those folks at that table, they know this boy. They knew him. He's dead now. God rest his soul. He was a great boy. 
he came in Cleveland group. Uh, he'd been living, he was one of these fellows that had been a First World War veteran, and he had a limited pension that he got once a month, and he was nigger rich for about three or four days when he got this pension. And he used to live in a boarding house with a bunch of WPA workers uh, on the week that he got his pension. The other three weeks, he used to live down in the city dump in Hooverville. That the rent was cheaper down there. It was free. And some of his buddies around this boarding house, they were hard put for the price one time, and they were trying to figure out how to get enough money together to get a jug. They didn't drink high-class liquor. For 25, 50 cents, they could get a pretty good bunch of mix. And they needed some dough, and they figured out how to do this, and they come upon a brilliant idea. This old landlady that ran his boarding and rooming house, she had a big old pet cat. And this old cat, he was quite something. has been her constant companion for a long time. So Russ Owens, this was a fellow's name, Russell Owens. Russ got the idea, since this was the fall of the year, it was November, it was hunting season, he thought that maybe some of these WPA workers in his boarding house would enjoy Hassenpfeffer. <laughs> if any of you folks don't know what Hassenpfeffer is, that's a rabbit stew. So they didn't do anything but snatch this cat. And they skinned it, and they gutted it, and they took it over and sold it to this old woman for a rabbit for 50 cents. <laughs> and she fed this to the WPA workers. Of course, those boys weren't there for dinner, but and Russ was afraid to go back for a long time. But he finally went back, and he asked the old lady where the cat was. She says, I don't know. He just disappeared one time. We haven't seen him since. Well, that's what you call ingenuity. Anything for the price. This thing, another story, they wanted to tell, me, tell you something about a fellow... It's a symbolic story. It's a true story, but I think it's symbolic of the AA career, the alcoholic's career, let me say. I got a letter in that plain dealer hustle that all these letters came in that time way back in 39, in that, those plain dealer articles. got a letter from a fellow that lived over on 82nd near Euclid that used to be in Millionaire's Row at one time. There were some tremendous big houses over there. There are all these 15, 20-room house deals, three floors, you know. I got a letter to come over there, and this neighborhood was not what it used to be. However, those big houses were still there. A lot of them were turned into rooming houses and, and uh, such things as that. So I went out to see this, answer this inquiry for help, for AA. I got out there, and I couldn't raise anybody. I looked in the house, and the house looked vacant. It looked bare as... There could be. There wasn't any furniture in the place. So I went around the side door, and the door was open, and I walked around, and the, the place was empty as empty as could be. There was not a stick of furniture. There wasn't a piece of plumbing left in that house. There wasn't a water faucet left in that house. Nothing. I went down the basement, and I found the guy. This guy's laying down there on an army cot. What had happened... Here's a young fellow, about 35 years old. He'd been living with his father, and his father had died. This young fellow was a rummy. 
And his father had left him some money, left him some insurance money, left him two automobiles, left him this 18 or 20 room house full of furniture, and he proceeded to drink the whole caboodle up. He drank up the money, the insurance money, he drank up every stick of furniture in that house, he even took the plumbing out of the house and sold it. The last thing went out of the house the morning before I got there was a hot water heater. He sold that. There was not a thing left in that house but a shell. If that isn't an AA story and an alcoholic story, I don't know what is. That's a true story. These are all true stories I'm telling at the moment. <laughs> one other fellow that I had the pleasure of meeting one time was a fellow from Toledo, Ohio. There's some people here from Toledo. This is one of their prize members up there. This fellow had been in jail so many times in Toledo that that was home sweet home. He presented quite a problem to the authorities around Lucas County up there because he had about ten kids. And when they put him in jail, they, the county had to keep the kids. And when they had him out, at least he had a chance to support, help support these kids. So they never knew just what to do with this guy. So they had him out in and out just like that all the time. He's going back and forth like a yo-yo. Well, <clears throat> the, his wife was a dear old soul, and she had a sewing machine. And she used to do some sewing, take in sewing to help supplement the income. Well, one day this bird's out of jail and he's ready to get drunk again, so he hocks the sewing machine. He kills the goose that lays the golden egg. So the sewing machine's gone, he gets drunk, he's back in the can again. So he's back there and they want to do something with him to get him out. They decide they're going to give him a real job this time. So they put him on a garbage wagon. They give him a route downtown. Uh, calling on restaurants with his garbage wagon. He had a team of horses on it, say. So he goes out with his garbage wagon working for the city. And he's, he works about two days. About the third day, he don't come back. Well, a garbage wagon is quite something to hide. It's a pretty obvious thing. You just can't hide a garbage wagon very long. And he didn't succeed in hiding it, but they found the wagon, but the team was gone. He took these two horses and he took them down to the farmer's market and sold them to a farmer for a couple hundred bucks. And, of course, he was gone and they're looking for him. So that, that's the kind of guys we used to get in AA. You know, I often think of this blurb that we got in AA now that this is a program of attraction rather than promotion. We don't attract those guys anymore. I think we better start promoting again and get some real rummies around here. Well, so much for the stories. Now, as I said in this talk, the first hour and a half, I'm going to talk about alcoholics. Next hour is alcoholism. Then I'm going to tell you something for another hour about how I, what I do about it. <laughs> Don't get scared. <laughs> I came into AA some when it, before it was known as AA. I want to tell you how I arrived here. I want to tell you something. I heard some something said here today by Helen Welch about the miracle of AA. And I just want, I just feel that every one of us is a miracle. It's a miracle that any of us are here. And I want to show you what the mathematical chances are were of me ever being here. I shouldn't be here at all. There's no reason in the world why I should be here. And I mean no reason in the world. And here's what happened to me. I had been given my last chance at home, 
And this chance was predicated upon the on the theory that I should go to work for my brother-in-law. His brother-in-law, he had been a cross to bear for me for a long time. And so would the whole family for that matter, but his brother-in-law particularly. <laughs> he had a truck, his brother-in-law. He had a long-distance outfit. He ran from Cleveland to New York. He had a tractor and a trailer outfit, and he used to haul 25, 30 tons of merchandise in this thing. And the family came to their wits end as to what to do with me. I couldn't work. I wasn't able to work. If they, anybody hired me, if anybody's crazy enough to hire me, I couldn't report anyway. So, I mean, I, I was out, of, completely out as far as working was concerned. So they thought, well, they'll give me one more chance. If I'll go on this truck and be his helper, I can prove myself. So they gave me that opportunity. Now, I might say right here, you talk about someone, the doctor was talking about allergies today. I have an allergy to hard work. I, I just don't believe in it. That is, that work is for mules and horses. It's not for people. And I never believed in working very hard, and I still don't. And now I can figure out a lot of ways to get out of it. I didn't, couldn't do that before. But I was at their mercy at this time, so I had to agree to take this job as a assistant truck driver. Well, I know nothing about a truck, and I wasn't about to learn, but I looked like I'd have to. So I agreed to do this job and go with them to New York. So I shall never forget this start. I didn't have any wardrobe left. Everything I had in the line of clothes I had sold. I got something like a dollar and a half for my last two suits and my overcoat. So I had no no wardrobe, and uh, he didn't know that I had any money with me either. I had a few dimes stuck around me, about a dollar and something in change I had in different pockets that didn't rattle. And in those days, way back in those days, you could do a lot with a little, you know, as far as money's concerned, if you weren't too particular what you drank. So I will start off for New York with this boy. He had fixed up this sleeper cab where I was supposed to have the top deck to sleep in and he would sleep on the seat. And he cleaned it all up and put curtains up there. Everything was lovely, just like home. And we started for New York. And it was cold weather. Everything happens to me in cold weather. Why, I don't know. Uh, there's something wrong. Uh, this, that's why I moved to Florida. I try to get away from this cold weather. I always, things happen to me in the most miserable time of the year. We start out in the fall of the year for New York in this truck. I'd never been on one of these things before, and believe me, I was terrified. I'd look out that little window and see that 30 tons of stuff following me down the road all the time. And he's going up one hill and down the other, over through Pennsylvania and that. And I got to thinking, isn't this guy ever going to stop? He, uh, I hadn't had a drink that day. I was an everyday drinker. I was not a periodic I drank all the time. It was normal for me to be drunk. So I didn't have any drink then, and I couldn't cage one from him, and he wouldn't stop. And he drove, and he drove, and he drove, and he drove. The next morning, breaking daylight, we got over into New York State, of all things, and he stopped for breakfast. And I shan't forget that. You know, there's some things we remember in our drinking career, and this was one of them. We stopped out there on a roadside stand, and he went out and bought a, a jug of this tomato juice and some Swiss or some York State cheese. That's breakfast. Ooh. Well, I couldn't handle any of that. 
So I had to get back. And re- believe me, I had the shakes. I had the sweats. I had the chills. I had everything. I, I was scared to death on top of it all. So I climbed back up in that thing, and away we went. And he drove all day. I thought, my gosh, is this guy never going to stop? What kind of endurance has he got? So we got to Albany that evening. This is a, this is finally comes to the point. So he gets tired out. He says, says to me, I'm going to take a nap for about 30 minutes. I says, that's wonderful. We're in Albany. I, I've always wanted to see the government buildings. So I, out of that truck and up the street I went. Well, I went into the first plush sewer I run into. And it was too rich for my blood. I didn't have the kind of money that I could handle a place like that. So I went down a few blocks and I found something that is more suitable to my station. I went in there and started throwing them in me real fast. And uh, it's funny how you always find an angel every place you go. I, I, I don't know. You always find one of these guys, a softy somewhere. And I found one in there. And I threw these things in and away I went back for this truck. And, I know, and have, not having had a drink since yesterday in the morning before, on the way back, these things hit me all at once. And the time I got back to the truck, I wasn't in very good shape. And I stepped on the poor boy's face, getting up in the back, and I'm sorry for that, of course. And he knew the church was out then, you know. So we went the rest of the way to New York without speaking or without further incident either, as far as our relationship was concerned. I can't say about what happened to the up part of that truck. But something happened there, too. <laughs> when we got to New York City, we got down there by the waterfront, down there by where the Canard steamship lines are. You probably, some of you have been slumming sometime. You've been down that way. That's where he threw me out. And he says, this is the end of the line, and goodbye, USOB. And he wrote his sister to that effect and told her what had happened, and there I was. Well, I didn't think that was very kind of him. And he had another sister who lived in Yonkers. I had one time been what she used to refer to as her favorite brother-in-law, Virginia. And I thought, well, Virginia won't treat me like this. She won't be so shabby. And so I make it out to Yonkers. It was quite a trick how I got there. I'm not going to go into that story, but I got out there for 15 cents. I thought I did pretty good. They had a streetcar wreck on the way, which helped. <laughs> well, any, anyway, I got out there, and instead of going up, she lived on his Palisades Avenue, way up on the top of a hill. I remember that I'd been there on my honeymoon. We, we, this family was very clannish. I spent my honeymoon with part of their family. They were a real Spanish family. Well, anyway, I go up. Instead of going up on this hill, I went down in Dago Town, down there, and got into some wine. By the time I got over to Virginia's house, I wasn't in very good shape. And she didn't do anything. The only thing I remember about that trip to her house, I was rolling around on the floor with her two kids. And she probably, that probably terrified her, so... She put me in the back of her car and took me right back to the waterfront, kicked me right out where I started from. <laughs> so there I was. But you know, I tell that story for this reason. There's an aftermath of that. Something happened. If it had not been for that experience, 
I wouldn't be here tonight. You know, the mathematical chances I spoke of are exactly zero that I'd ever be here. But what happened? Sometime later, Virginia had the doctor over to look after her kids for some reason or other, and they got to talking about drinking. As a lot of people do, I guess her husband is sticking his nose in that jug a little too often, but he's too tight to be an alcoholic. But he he was drinking, and she was concerned about it. This is my family I'm talking about. Don't laugh. <laughs> it was. Well, anyway, they, uh, they got talking about this drinking. She told him about this experience of this drunken brother-in-law of hers and what had happened, what a nice guy he used to be and what a bum he is now, see? He says, you know, that's odd. He says, I used to have a drunken brother-in-law like that myself. But he joined some kind of a cult. And he don't drink anymore. And uh, he says, furthermore, he's acquainted with some doctor down in Akron, Ohio, who also was a rummy, and he joined some kind of a cult down there. And he spends all his time fixing drunks. He says, now, this brother-in-law of yours ever gets back to Cleveland... You might see if you can't get him down there to Akron and meet this doctor. Maybe he can fix him, too. This doctor in New York was Dr. Strong, Leonard Strong. That's Phil Wilson's brother-in-law. Of course, they were talking about Dr. Bob in Akron. So when I finally got back to the Midwest and Indian country again, why, my wife asked me if I'd like to go down and meet this doctor. She told me about him. And I said, what could I lose? So, sure. So she bought me a one-way bus ticket and put me on a bus and sent me down. Well, you know, that's my first meeting with Dr. Bob, Dr. Smith. And I would like to say that that was my most successful one, but tell you what happened there. He scared me to death. This man, he knew too much for me. I couldn't figure out. I went in there to see him. I, when I went down that morning, I hadn't had a drink. Don't forget, this is cold weather, too. This is the middle of winter. Terrible. <laughs> I got down there, and his offices were up in the Second National Bank building in Akron, Ohio. I went up there quite early in the morning. She got rid of me quick, you know. And uh, so he wasn't in his office when I got there. And I paced back and forth in that hallway waiting for him. I don't know how long I was there. It seemed an awful long time, but I was afraid to leave the building because I was afraid I'd ever get out of there. I'd never get back. And it was nice and warm in there anyway. So I waited and I waited and I paced and paced, walked back and forth and back and forth and waiting for this doctor to appear and wondering what this doctor had that other people didn't have, see? So every time I passed this door, I'd read his name on the door. It said on his door, Dr. Robert H. Smith, rectal surgeon. <laughs> it struck me that this is a, certainly a new approach to alcoholism. <laughs> so I didn't know what to expect, but finally Doc came in. He, and any of you folks who've had the privilege of meeting Doc know that he's a man of few words. And he's a man who could look right through you. Really, he, he's a terrific fellow. So he ushers me through his office, through a couple of them into the back room. And he sits me down. And then I was all prepared to tell him all about my symptoms. 
But he didn't let me do that. He told me all about myself, and this frightened me. I, I couldn't figure this. This is this is something that never happened to me before. And uh, I got wondering how he knew all this about me. There's something wrong. There's some involved plot going on here. And there's two things that came into what I used to use as a brain. First of all, I figured this guy is one of two things. He's either a private detective, and he's been following me, or he's something else. And this other thing was a very terrifying thing. In those, at that time in Cleveland, if any of you folks who were around, you'll remember this, they were having a little deal going down there that they called the Torso Murder Mysteries. They were finding pieces of bodies all wrapped up in newspaper down there in Kingsbury Run. And they never identified but one of these bodies. That was a woman. They, they cut one woman up. The rest of them were all men. But this one woman, had, they found some fingerprints. They, had some fin they took fingerprints and she'd had a police record and they had identified her. But the rest of these fellas, they had never identified any of them. And so the newspapers, this was grist for their mill. This mad butcher of Kingsbury Run they kept talking about. And they were theorizing that this fellow who was doing all this cutting up for kicks was either a mad butcher, he was a doctor, or something like that because he had a, some kind of a real good technique. He knew anatomy real well and knew how to cut it up. So he was either a butcher or a doctor, one or the other. And, uh, so, but they never found out who he was. And they, they theorized that these were all some of these rummies from down in the jungle there. There was a jungle down there at Kingsbury Run. And he was picking off his victims down there and having his fun with them. And so when this doctor starts telling me all about myself and knowing so much about me, the next thing he wanted to do is to put me in a place out in Cuyahoga Falls, which was a goonie roost. <laughs> and he's, his reason for putting me out there, he says, it would take me out of circulation and people wouldn't bother me. <laughs> well, I didn't want to go out of circulation this soon. <laughs> this guy had to be the mad butcher. <laughs> and I was his next victim. So I waited till Doc was getting a breather. And away I went. I blew out of his office. <laughs> Left him sitting there talking to himself. Well, I, you know, I never forgot that, man. I couldn't get him off my mind. And eventually, sometime later, I don't know how much later, probably a few weeks, I suppose, I was sitting around with a bunch of these jug buddies of mine, and we got on our favorite subject, the subject of quitting drinking, you know. And we used to get on that every once in a while. So I think I brought the subject up this time to give you some kind of a... It did something for the ego to talk about things like that, bring a little tension on yourself. So I made this bland announcement that I was going to quit drinking, get out of all this crap. Boy, I should never forget some of the remarks. So those birds looked at me. Now, remember, they're all drunk, just like me, a bunch of lushes. And this one guy, I can always remember him. He says to me, you, you'll never quit drinking. He says, you don't have guts enough to quit drinking. He says, look at you, he says. To quit drinking takes determination, he says. And to have determination, you have to have a chin. He says, you got a chin like Andy Gump. <laughs> he says, you got no guts. 
this other guy drunker than I am telling me all about it. <laughs> you know, that fella did something for me. What little vestige of pride I had left, I had to make the bet good. I said, all right, I'll show you I'm going to quit. I know a doctor in Akron who is going to fix me. He said, nobody can fix you. I'll show you they'll fix me. So I got a hold of somebody's telephone someplace. I don't know who's. But somebody, somebody got an awful bill. Because Doc told me that I called him six or eight or so times. I only remember calling him once. So I didn't have any phone, I can assure you. But it's somebody's telephone I got working on. And uh, he arranged that I should meet him at City Hospital in Akron the next day. And I did. I met him there. And I was in February 1938. And I'm very happy to say I've never had a drink since. Now, that was my... Entrance into AA. When I came to AA, this was not known as Alcoholics Anonymous as yet. This was the old Oxford group. And I had the privilege of being one of the first 50 in this group. About 40 some were in this fellowship before I arrived. And the alcoholics in this group were in the minority. Most of the people in this group were not alcoholics. They were just people trying to live good type of lives, and they didn't have these 12 steps or anything. They had to try to live by the four absolutes of honesty, unselfishness, purity, and love. The 12 steps came along later when the book was being written. Now, when I was in this hospital, I was a sick duck. I weighed 130 pounds. And a fellow my size, five foot 11, weighing 130, you're not much to look at. I'm not much to look at now, but you ought to see me then. But, uh, Doc uh, wasn't too sure. He wasn't too sure he was going to let me in this fellowship. And I wasn't too sure I was going to get in either. He said, he told me, he said, we don't know about you. He said, you're, you're pretty young. In those days I was. I even had a little hair. <laughs> but he says, you're, you're pretty young and we haven't any success with young fellows like you. They're all screwballs and nuts. And, uh, they just don't stay sober. Not, they haven't had enough. They haven't been beat enough. So I said, what to do? What do I have to do? But anyway, he put me in this hospital, and I can remember they didn't know anything about vitamins in those days for alcoholics, and they, the tray they sent me, ugh, it was awful. I remember they brought me up corned beef and cabbage. Imagine sobering up on corned beef and cabbage. <laughs> I can't eat the bloody stuff now, even thinking about it. I can remember... I stayed in there, and different fellows would come in and visit me. There were 18 men who came to see me in that hospital. I remember that because they all put the name on a little sheet at the at my bedside. I still have that treasure. And some of them came back two or three times while I was in there. It was in about a week, I guess. And uh, so I can remember those fellows all coming in talking to me. And they all told me their stories. They're all older men than I was. Uh, some of them a good deal older than I was. I was in my early 30s then. So, those fellows told me what had happened to them. And they all told me one thing. They said they had the answer to my problem. But none of them would give me the answer, tell me what it was. So the last day that I'm in there, I could, I'll still remember this day if I live to be a thousand. I still wasn't eating Remember, in a week, I'm still not able to eat anything to mount anything. Because Paul Stanley, some of you folks all remember Paul. Paul is dead now. The two Stanley boys both are gone. 
Paul was married to a gal who is a Christian science practitioner, and Paul had been soaking up a lot of Christian science over the year that he'd been sober. And he came in to see me at breakfast time that morning, the last day I was in, and he started talking to me. He ate my breakfast for me, too. He's a good fella. He was still there at noon, and he ate my lunch. I got the ice cream out of it. It's all I made. And he was there till late in the afternoon, and Doc came in. Now, here is my introduction to the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous as they are today. Doc came in, and he, Paul left. Paul had talked himself out by 4 o'clock in the afternoon from breakfast time. He nearly murdered me, too. But I was still in the bed, and uh, Doc came in. He sat on the foot of the bed, very unprofessional-like, and he looks at me, and he says, Young fella, he says, what do you think of all this by now? He called me young fella. He always did. He always had a name for everybody. That was my name with Doc, a young fella. I said, I think this is great. I said, all these fellas coming in to see me, they don't know me from a bale of hay, but they're all telling me their stories. They all tell me one thing. Is this what puzzles me? They all tell me they have the answer to my problem, but none of them tell me what this answer is. I said, what gives here? What, 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 what happens? What do I have to do? What are you going to do to me? says, we don't know. says, you're pretty young. We're not too sure about you. We don't know what you're ready yet. You know, that's like tying that hay on the front of a mule's nose and letting them get them to go. They were holding out something for me. I says, well, what do I have to do to get ready? My heavens, here I am on the bum. I'm sick. I weighed 130 pounds. I lost everything that's worthwhile in life. Well, we don't know. We haven't any luck with young fellas. I had to convince him that I wanted this program. So finally, he says, all right. He says, I'll give you the answer to this. So he turns to me. I said, oh, here she comes. So he turns to me. He says, young fella, he says, do you believe in God? And Doc had fingers about his long, and he points them at you. Do you believe in God? And I certainly never expected that from a medical doctor. And that, that really took me back. I nearly fell out of bed when he gave me that one. So, I have to parry this, naturally. You don't just say yes or no on a deal like that. So I said to him, well, what does that have to do with it? He says, young fellow, that has everything to do with it. Do you or don't you? Well, I have to answer. I says, well, I guess I do. He says, there's no guessing about it. You do or you don't. Okay. I love this when talking about being real smooth with these new guys afraid to scare them away. So I says, okay, I do, I believe. He says, okay, now we can get someplace. So he told me some things that I would have to do. The first thing he says, all right, he says, now we'll pray. I says, who'll pray? He says, you'll pray. I says, I know nothing about praying. He says, I don't expect you to do. So all you have to do is repeat after me what I say. So he uttered a prayer and I repeated after him. I felt foolish. It didn't kill me, but I felt like a stop. So then he shook hands with me. He says, young fellow, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. He says, I'm going to take you to a meeting tonight. When you come out of here, I'm going to meet some other people. He says, I'm going to teach you a lot of things. These people are going to teach you a lot of things. And they sure did. Well, he took me to this meeting. That was my beginning in this fellowship. This was in Akron, Ohio. I 
I made my headquarters in Cleveland. And I had to go back and forth to Akron to these meetings every Wednesday night. And believe me, I missed two meetings in 15 months, and only because he couldn't get through the snow. I was down there. There was nothing going on in this world on Wednesday night but that meeting in Akron, Ohio. So I got there. I go down there on weekends to be with these people. Then some of them start coming up to Cleveland. The association was very close, very meaningful. After, when going down to these meetings, some of these people took great interest in me. And several people in particular. There's Bill Dotson, who used to live here. His wife was a great friend of mine. She did a lot for me. She was not an alcoholic, but she took great interest in me. She used to help me, talk to me, try to explain things to me, encourage me. Great girl. One fellow down there who took great interest in me, he's also dead and gone now, is old Bill Van Horn. I can always remember Bill. One night he comes to me after a meeting in Akron and he says, Clarence, he says, Old Bill, you know, he was a rough, tough character. These folks all knew him here. And he, he was a kind of a guy of a fight start. You want to be on his side, believe me. He was big. And he had been in a nut house. He'd been in a, in a, one of the state hospitals there. Cause Bill had also been a World War I veteran. He had a little pension. Every time he get that pension, he used to turn the town of Kent and Akron upside down. As long as his money lasted. And he'd wind up in a can and uh, there'd be a carnage of busted policemen's noses and all this kind of business. He never learned that he couldn't whip the police force. He never learned that. But he tried. So the folks, they finally had him probated and they put him in the nut factory down there. And he was put away for good. Believe me, they, they just going to throw the key away on him. But Doc took him out of the nut house and put him in the group. And he stayed sober till the day he died many years later. He just died a few years ago. But Bill, he he took he, he used to take great interest in me. I don't know why. I suppose old Bill probably is one of these guys you to pick up stray cats and dogs, I suppose, and had a sympathy for something like that. And he had a sympathy for me. And he used to always talk to me and try to help me and encourage me. I remember one night he came to me after a meeting, and Bill was in, he preceded me in the group by six months. Bill said to me one night, he says, Clarence, he says, I'm going to give you the answer to this whole proposition. He says, I'm going to give you something here. I want you to read it. I want you to study it. I don't want you to ever forget it. He says, when you get this in your noodle, you've got the answer to the whole ball of wax. So Bill digs down his pocket and takes out his billfold. An old beat-up billfold crammed full of old papers and clippings and things that were treasures to him. No money. Everything but. Bunch of junk. And he goes through all this debris and he comes out with a little slip of paper and he hands it to me. The slip of paper was a Bible verse. And I looked at this Bible verse and I looked at this big gorilla. And I thought, wow, maybe they let him out too soon. A <laughs> uh, big guy like this carrying around little Bible verses handing them around to people, you know. You get these ideas. But I shall never forget what he gave me. I took his advice, and this Bible verse was from the second Corinthians, the fifth chapter and the seventeenth verse. And it read thusly, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
Just think about that. Go home and read that. If that isn't a story of our change and this way of life, I'd like to know a better one. Bill gave me that, and I've never forgotten it. I've passed it on to a lot of people. It's been there all the time, but I never knew about it. It's still there for anyone that doesn't know about it now. Well, those things are experiences we have. Now, A has developed. Over the years, I have been always interested and active in AA. I still am. I go to meetings, probably as many meetings as most people here do. I always try to learn and help myself and do what I can to help someone else if, if it's possible. Over the period of time, I learned certain things. I learned these things, most of them, the hard way. I didn't read them in books. I'd like to pass on to you folks tonight a few things that I think about alcoholics and alcoholism and what can be done with them. First thing, let's talk about alcoholics, rummies, rummies. You know, everybody can't be an alcoholic. Believe that. So a lot of you earth people around here, don't, don't worry about it. Just, just accept the inevitable. You can't be. I think the privilege of being an alcoholic is reserved to a chosen few. And I think there's a very small percentage of the people in this world who are privileged to belong to this fellowship of ours as active members, full members. I think an alcoholic is a different breed of cat than most people. I think that you can type him, you can catalog him by characteristics. Now, I don't say that some of these earth people don't have some of these characteristics, but they don't have all of them. The rummy has them all. And I, I've learned this because in working with alcoholics, I've learned just like, you know, I'm a salesman, and I learn when to drop a prospect when I'm selling I learned, in good many cases, when to drop a prospect for AA when he is not a prospect. There are people who'd like to be in this thing that have no more damn business in this than I have in the KSC. See? <laughs> now, when I meet an alcoholic, I start to check this guy. They tell me, you can't tank his inventory. Well, nuts, I can't. If I haven't, if I've been around alcoholics, all these years sober and live with them all those years drunk. If I don't know an alcoholic when I see one now, I better start all over again. So I think I can catalog them pretty good. There's some examples back there. They, they, they qualify. And they qualify on these characteristics, too. When you meet a bird, comes in here, he's trying to beat his way into here one way or another. Find out if he's a rummy. I'm not interested in Party drinkers are good time Charlies or people who are not problem drinkers as such. I think I've never seen an alcoholic yet. Only one. I, I'll admit that. I've met one. Only one I've met who did not have what is referred to as an inferiority complex. I met one, one extrovert. This guy used to be the mayor of Miami Beach. He's dead now, but I think he extroverted himself out. But, but he, but, uh, they all have these feelings of inadequacy, the inferiority complex. I, I've never found one outside of that one fellow. They're all high-strung individuals. 
All high-strung, they're quick thinkers. They're not deep thinkers. Very seldom do you find one that's a pipe smoker. You'll find the oddball around once in a while that does it. But, you know, you find an oddball any place. They even let it, they're allowing them in here now. But most of the alcoholics eat these cigarettes. They're chain smokers, see? And they're smoking and they got three or four of them going, don't even know it. But they're high-strung. They have a lot of imagination. They have quick thinking. You, you, you can't get ahead of this guy. I, I don't care what you think. You never see one of them that gets down into a brown funk trying to figure things out. He, he'll do something, you know, but if there's any thinking to be done, somebody else is going to do it or he'll do it later. He'll find excuses for it, maybe, or reasons why he did it. But he's not one of these guys that you would take that someone has mentioned about, Bob has mentioned about Roden's thinker on the front of this thing. That's not the rummy. Anytime I get up, and I hope they don't have one here, but when I get up to a group and I find that sign up here that some of them have up at the sink, I always turn it over. I don't know. Well, they've got nothing to think with when they come in here. <laughs> so let's not put undue burdens on the poor brother. It takes a long time to learn how to do that after getting in here. We have to get uh, inoculated with various things before we're able to do that. No, they are, they'll act, but their thinking is, uh, that's a different thing. We, uh, we connive. And they're ingenious people, but they're not the studious type. They're very sensitive souls. They're always going around looking for someone to hurt their feelings. <laughs> yeah, and it's wonderful. It's a great game. The biggest liars that ever wore shoes. Terrific. They are past masters in lying. They lie when the truth would serve them better. They lie for practice. <laughs> have to. Being on the defensive as we always are, we have to have those kind of things to get us out of some of these things we're, we get into. So we, we're very adept at that. Alcoholics are fearful people. We have all kinds of fears. Yeah, and they're always on the defensive. Always. Very emotional people. Very emotional. That is why these different type of cures and different kind of treatments that run the gamut of psychiatry down to hypnotism have very little effect on an alcoholic. You see, the failure of so many of these, these treatment programs that they have in some of the state programs, we have one in Florida that's a total flop in my book and it, it could be a total success. If they only would get this one thing in their noodles, and you can't tell them. You can't tell them. I go up and try to tell some, some of these birds something, they, they look like they will block me up. I'm crazy. They don't turn out any successful candidates out of there. I have never met one yet. There might be one or two, but I haven't met them yet. I meet more mixed up people coming out of those things that so many things they have to unlearn before they can accept AA. It's a pity. The reason for that is this. They take those people down there and they appeal to their reason and to their logic. They show them movies of what booze is going to do to them. They show them pictures of hobnail livers. They have what they call group therapy, where all these failures sit around in a bunch and they tell each other how to succeed in staying sober. And none of them have ever stayed sober, but they're, they're, this is what they call group therapy. This isn't the biggest bunch of crap I ever heard of. 
And a guy spends 28 years of his life when he could be out drinking in peace. Don't do anything like that. See? If they could only get somebody in there and teach them the simple program of Alcoholics Anonymous when they're sober for those many days. Teach them something about how to live. But no, they appeal to their reason and their logic. They don't know that it takes about three years for the average alcoholic coming into AA to reach a degree where he can be logical at all in any degree. The average one. I'm not talking about all you exceptions. <laughs> it takes time. The alcoholic don't react to logic, common sense. There isn't an alcoholic sitting in here who hasn't had some of the grandest advice in the world, the best advice. People have told us what's going to happen to us. And we did it. We proved they were right. It never didn't, never changed the situation at all. Our bosses talked to us. Our families talked to us. Our wives, our husbands talked to us. The preacher talked to us. The judge talked to us. The policeman talked to us. We got fired. We got rehired. We got canned again. We wound up here, there, and every place. And people told us what was happening to us. It all happened. And they told us we shouldn't drink. They were right. They were perfectly right. Nothing wrong with that advice. But that's no way to reach an alcoholic. The alcoholic is an emotional creature. You'll never meet a, you'll never reach an alcoholic except through the way he feels. Not the way he thinks. It's how we feel. When we feel badly enough, then we're going to do something. But we have to feel. We feel differently when we come to AA. This is all a matter of feeling. What a feeling we have for one another. We have to fear everyone. We come in here, we love everyone. It's different, you see. We used to hate a lot of people. We used to be afraid of them, hide from them. Now we welcome these people here. We welcome one another. We have a different feeling about things. No one's going to change into a different life till he feels like it. Not how he thinks. I know I've I've been in these missions. I've been in talk to ministers, and they've done their best. And I have no quarrel with them. They 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 do the best they can. Talk to ministers, and they've done their best. And I have no quarrel with them. They 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 do the best they can. And they say you have to make a decision for Christ. You have to make a decision for that's very true, but there's no way to approach it. That has to be felt after. And then we go after it and reach for it. But you can't do it on the basis of logic or suggestion. Can't be done. That is why Alcoholics Anonymous is successful and other means have not been. You know, this thing of alcoholism has been with us for an awful long time. As long as history is recorded, we hear about the antics of alcoholics. We read about it in the Bible. Look at how old Noah got stiff. Nearly fell off the ark. Oh, you read, you read about it in ancient history, Greek mythology. You read about hypocrisy. We had a doctor talking to us this afternoon, and he was talking about the Hippocratic Oath. Hypocrisies, way back in, I guess it's 400 and something B.C. He, was that right, doctor? 460 B.C. or something. There's a story about him in connection with alcoholism. Some woman came to him about her husband, who was a rummy. This is 460 B.C. And he told her, I have nothing for him. Take him to the temple. 
take him to the temple, he said. Did you ever read that story there? Yeah. That was a long time ago. Lots of things have been tried. Lots of suggestions. There's been jails. There's been sanitariums. There's been persuasion. There's been logic. There's been preaching. There's been everything. And until the last few years, nothing has shown any marked results. Now, why? Tell me this. If you don't think you and I are the most fortunate people in the world, figure this one out, will you? And tell me the answer. With all these thousands of years that this thing of alcoholism has been in existence, and the millions and millions of alcoholics who have walked across the face of this earth and have lived and died alcoholics and have affected all their people who are close to them, the millions of people who have been affected in the past, there are still millions of alcoholics on the face of the earth that are still drinking, and they're affecting a lot of people, and there will be millions to come in the years to come. Tell me this. Why just a few thousand of us here have this privilege? Did you ever think of that? Any person here who belongs and has the opportunity to belong in this fellowship, he should ask himself why he has this chance. Why you do have it and these other millions never had it and millions never will have it. Just get the answer to that. You should feel very thankful that you're one of the chosen. We are of the chosen few here. We are God's chosen people. Every person here who is an alcoholic has had a disastrous life and nothing hopeful to look forward to till this came along. And the whole picture changes. When a person approaches AA, something happens to him right now. The first time he ever gets here, something happens. He changes. I don't say that every person who approaches AA immediately is fortunate as I was and goes right on and stays sober right on to. No, some people are not that fortunate. Some of them get drunk time and again, some of them. But I, whether they get drunk or stay sober, something happens to them. They get touched with something when they come here and they start to change. Now, if nothing else, if this guy never sobers up, if nothing else, his drinking is ruined. He can never drink in peace again because he knows he's a slob. <laughs> he knows there's a way out. And if he don't have enough guts to stand for it and go along with it and resign himself to it, that's his choice in good many cases. I don't go along with this 25% who can't recover. That's a lot of hogwash in my book. That was written way before AA started. Really. Since AA has started, that's been changed. There's hope for everybody. I've seen some miserable cases and people who have had very, very little to work with here or anywhere that has succeeded in AA because it isn't a matter of capacity. This is by the grace of God. And who he's going to touch isn't left up to you and I. We have had this chance every person in his room and we do change if you don't believe it just think about some of the people whom you've met in AA as time goes on you, you find a person come into a meeting tonight he comes into this meeting hall and he's sick and he's upset and he's scared he's fearful he's without this without that without everything almost without hope 
Maybe he's coming in as his last vestige of hope, this membership in this fellowship. Comes here for help. And he's a sick-looking duck, and he's dirty, and he's broke, and he's scared, and he stinks. You come back two or three weeks later, and this guy's in that meeting. And I, this has happened to me many, many times. This is not an isolated case. A few weeks later, I come back, that guy's in that meeting, I don't know him. He's changed so much in two or three weeks. Don't tell me this doesn't do something. And surely it's not because this fellow has soaked up any wisdom in this thing. He hasn't had a chance to learn anything about what this program is. But something has happened to him. You tell me what it is. You think about what it is. You don't fool with things like this. person comes in here, you're fooling with dynamite. Believe me. I say that because I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of things happen. I could stand here for hours. I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm... <laughs> I could stand here for hours and tell you experiences of people whom I've met in this fellowship and the various stages of degradation and failing help that they've had when they arrived here and what has happened to them. And I'll tell you about people who've had a lot of intelligence and all the opportunities in the world from an educational standpoint, family background, what have you. And they've made monkeys out of themselves here because they wouldn't resign themselves to what this is. This is not a program of anything else but resignation. We must resign ourselves to the fact that we've come to the end of the rope. The end of the road, we've reached our extremity. And then we can begin. As long as we think we can handle this thing ourselves, we will not let go. Now then, this thing of alcoholism, what is it? What is alcohol? I hear all kinds of things. The doctor was talking about alcoholism today. What is it? I want to tell you what I think alcoholism is. I hear a lot of this jazz about diseases and all this kind of stuff. It may be a disease because we certainly aren't at ease. We must be diseased. But if this is a disease as such, where you have a culture and a germ and one thing or another, I'll guarantee you one thing, sure as God made little apples, they're never going to find a pill or a potion that's going to make a party drinker out of you again. I've seen guys try it. I have yet to find the first successful one. Harry Walker was telling me about a guy the other day that thought he had the answer to it. The guy tried it for three or four years. He thought he had found a way back to party drinking, to control drinking. You ought to see the control he got into. Yeah, they all do. There's no pill or potion that's going to change a person in this thing of alcoholism. Call it what you want. A rose by any other name is just as sweet. But well, the only change I know that you can make that's going to change that situation is a change in here. That's the change in here. We become new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When we are willing to do that, then the change comes and we recover. But a lot of people don't want to do that. 
You know, there's stories in the good book about such things as that. Remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to the Lord. He says, what should I do? What can I do to be saved? He says, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. He couldn't do that. He couldn't do that. He couldn't let go. History never tells us what happened to that young fellow. We can only conjecture. But he, he missed the boat. We have to be ready to let go of everything. See, alcoholics are extremists. That's another characteristic that the alcoholic has. He never does anything by halfway measures. When the alcoholic works, he works hard. When he plays, he plays hard. And when he gets drunk, he makes a career of it. <laughs> There's no way in the world that this alcoholic can ever sober up on a part-time basis. He's either yes or he's no. He's black or white in this deal, that's all. And he can't be gray. If he's gray, he's drunk. That's as simple as it is. This is a very simple program for complicated people. This thing of alcoholism, some people say that it's a habit. Well, that's a fine kettle of hogwash, too. Because there isn't a habit that any of us have that we cannot break. Now, this habit I referred to about smoking, for instance. Most alcoholics enjoy that habit and they chain smokers, and they smoke even when they don't even know it. You know that. Now, they love it. They don't feel any reason why they should quit, and why should they if they enjoy it, you know? So they smoke, but it's not doing them much good, and the doctors, some doctors will tell them this, that, and the other thing about it. Well, suppose someone, a doctor came along and told an alcoholic, if you don't quit that smoking, you're going to be dead in three months. You'll die. There isn't a rummy sitting in here that couldn't quit in three days. In fact, he quit now. I know it. Habits can be broken. We're all creatures of habits, and habits are a good thing. They save a lot of wear and tear on the brains. Most of the things we do in general run a life where we do by force a habit. We get up in the morning and put on the left shoe first and go through the same rigmarole. We don't have to give much conscious thought. Maybe we put a purple tie on a green shirt or something, but I mean, we, we have to give a little thought to our color scheme maybe, but actually, a lot of the things we do, we don't have a conscious thought to. Habit, habit, habit. And some habits are very good. Some habits are very destructive. If we have a destructive habit, we can break it by a little substitution and determination. But this thing of drinking is not a habit. We passed, we as alcoholics passed the habit stage long before. Some of us never had the habit stage. We were compulsive from the start. So it's not a habit. Certainly if it is a habit, you don't think we lose our jobs, our self-respect, our families, everything that's near and dear to us just for a lousy habit? No, we wouldn't do that. We're not that kind of people. Alcoholics whom I know are great people. They're the greatest. They have something. They're idealists. They wouldn't do that. Other people say that this thing of drinking is a taste proposition. Well, there's another crock of it. Taste. Believe me, if this were a matter of taste, I can think of a lot of things that would be taste a lot better than this stuff that we used to buy for seven cents a pint that you buy in a wallpaper store. 
I can think of a lot of things that would be a lot more palatable than some of the lotions that some of the brethren here used to drink. A lot of this stuff that they used to do, some of the guys that are down the missions that come in and drink this gasoline and milk bit and all this kind of business. Do you think they drank it because they liked it? That's a taste? Listen, if it's only a matter of taste, we could cultivate other tastes. We could cultivate a taste for apples or bananas or some or oranges. I don't know who wants to eat 40, 50 apples or bananas or oranges every day, but we could, we could cultivate something a lot more palatable than some of this garbage fluid that we used to put, a, put in our stomachs. Especially we who started drinking prohibition days. No, it's not a matter of taste. We wouldn't lose our families and everything worthwhile for a matter of taste either. It'd be very simple if it were taste or habit. Drinking to an alcoholic is an obsession. It's an all-consuming thing. An obsession to me suggests a condition of the mind. It's a way of life. When I was a drinking alcoholic, any plan I had to make, if I were going to a wedding or if I was going to a funeral, if I was going to a party or a picnic or a business conference, or whatever I was going to attend, socially or otherwise, the first thing I had to consider was the liquor situation. Is there going to be booze there? How much and how quick can I get it? Yeah. No booze, no clarence. I lived a simple life. Well-defined. If I had to go to a party where I was expected, and I, when I was still allowed to travel in polite society, uh, if I had to go to one of these parties where I was expected to sit around and suck on a couple of highballs all night, I, don't su I suppose I was different than the rest of you birds, but here's what I would do. I would go there half-charged, I'd take my own jug with me and ditch it under the bathtub or something so I could go and bell at it if I had to, I'd go out in the kitchen and steal all of my guests, uh, all of my host liquor that I get my hands on. Many times I've done this. I'm not proud of this, but I've done this. I've gone out. I'd run out and help mix the drinks. I don't care about mixed drinks. They never appeal to me, but anything to drink is all right. But if he was mixing drinks, I'd go out and help him. Because he'd carry the drinks in and when he's in there, I'd drink out of his bottle. And then I'd put water in his bottle so it wouldn't have a difference. Well, uh, that went on when I was still with polite people. So what kind of a nut does it take to do that stuff? What kind of... Do you think that was because I was crazy about the taste of it? Was it a habit? There was something wrong with me. I was obsessed with the idea of a drink. The idea of a drink, my whole life revolved around that. I had to change my life to where the idea of a drink became the most ridiculous thing in my life. That's what I had to do, and that's what you have to do. Now... It's all a matter how you look at it. Now, this thing of alcoholism can only be changed, as we have proven in AA, successfully by a change of life. The alcoholic program teaches us how to change this life and, and keep it that way. Now, the alcoholic has to be reached. And there's ways of reaching him. I mentioned before that we can't reach him by logic, but we have to get his attention. You know, it reminds me of a story, my, one of my favorite salesman's story about getting attention. I like this story. It's a story about, and this is, we have to get the alcoholic's attention. We're selling him a bill of goods, don't forget that. 
one of my favorite stories is this, that the farmer had a mule for sale. His old mule, he's standing out in the middle of the field out there, and this other guy come to buy the mule. So he looked the mule over, he looked sound, looked all right, healthy. So he says, is it a good mule? He says, sure, he's a good mule. Is he a good worker? Sure, he's a good worker. Do anything you want. He's a good worker. He says, all you got to do with this mule, there's only one thing you got to do with this mule, though. I'll tell you before you buy him. You got to be kind to him. Well, he says, I think I'm kind to animals. I'll be kind to them. I shouldn't have any trouble. He says, well, just remember, be kind to him. Speak nice to him and be kind to him. He says, okay. So the guy buys the mule and he takes it over to his farm. Next morning, he goes out to work this mule. The mule's standing out there in the middle of the field with his head down like the mules do. And he ain't moving. So he goes over there and he tries to coax the mule and get him in harness over here, and he can't get that mule to move. He harnessed the doggone thing up, he brought the thing over and harnessed him up, and the mule don't, he don't move at all. And he starts talking to him, talking real sweet to him, real kind, pleading with him, reasoning with this mule. He don't get any place with him. So he said, oh boy, I'm stuck. So he goes back to the guy who he bought it from. He said, hey, you sold me a lemon of a mule here. The damn thing won't do anything. I can't get him to move. He said, you can't. He says, that's odd. He says, no, he won't do anything. He says, are you kind to him? Have you been nice to him? Sure, I've been nice to him. He says, well, there's something wrong. I'll go over and see. So he goes over to the farm with this guy, and there's a mule standing in the same spot. So this guy that owned the mule the day before, he goes over and picks up a two-by-four, and he hauls off and belts that mule right between the eyes and almost knocks him down. And then there kills him. The guy says, my heavens, I said, you told me you had to be kind to this mule. He says, you do, but first you got to get his attention. <laughs> so this is the same way with these AAs. you got to get their attention. Now, how to do it by promotion or attraction, that's something else. Now, we have a program here. Once the alcoholic's attention is reached, he has to be indoctrinated with if he's going to have a change of life. And this is our program of 12 steps. This program was very ably gone over last night by 12 of you. There were some awfully nice points, good points brought out in that discussion last night. The 12 points are our basic program. There has been a lot of things added to AA over the years, some of them good and some of them strictly garbage. But these 12 steps are the same. These are, this is the program. And this is what we recover on. This is what we live by. This is what we develop with. I would like now for the next three hours to tell you about the 12 steps. You're not going any place. They're not dancing tonight. They don't have a band out there, do they? All right. You think I came well away down here just for talk for a few minutes? It's a long ways. These 12 steps, to me, are broken down into four phases, I think. I like to think of them as being in four distinct phases. The first step is a step of admission. Admission. 
We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That step I had no trouble with. The evidence was so overwhelming that I have no quarrel with it. I think most alcoholics have taken that step before they ever come to AA. They know there's something wrong. There's a screw loose someplace. They know that. It's just getting them to admit it. Because an alcoholic don't like to admit anything. He don't even admit it's raining outside. It might involve him in something. <laughs> but if we are hurting enough, we'll admit this, that there's something wrong. So we admit that we're powerless over alcohol. I have, I can't dwell too much on this first step because I had absolutely no reason to quarrel with it. And I think if we get any semblance of honesty in our hearts, I think there's very few of us can quarrel with that first step. So we admit it, there's something wrong. Unless there's a need for a change, it's no use starting, so let's forget about it. If you can't admit to that, let's go home and forget about it. Don't don't come in, AA, forget about it. We don't need you around here anyway. But if you are an alcoholic and admit it, we, we begin. The second phase of AA is what I prefer to refer to as the submission, which runs from step two through step seven, admission and submission. The second step here, listen carefully to this step. It says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe. It doesn't say we believed when we got here. It doesn't say anything about that. It says we came to believe. And why did we come to believe? I'll tell you why I came to believe it. I came to believe it because of the experience those men had who had preceded me and had talked to me. And they had something I wanted. And they told me that a power had helped them. I wanted to, that power to help me. So I came to believe that it would. You heard what Doc said to me. Do you believe in God? I, I had extreme doubts about that. I'd been away from the church for a long, long time when I came to AA. I had extreme doubts, but I came to believe because I wanted to. I wanted what those men had. There was no other help for me, so I came to believe that this power could help me because it had helped these other fellows. Third step, it says here, we made a decision. Boy, that's something for a rummy to do, make a decision. Boy, and keep it. We made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Now, that is really a rough step to take for an alcoholic that's asking an awful lot of him. And if he don't hurt an awful lot, he's not going to do that. Because he knows very little about this God that we speak of. He's some ethereal creature way off in the far blue yonder with whom he has very little acquaintanceship. And someone asks him to turn their life and their will over to this creature that he knows nothing much about, it's, it's asking a lot. And I repeat, unless this fellow hurts badly enough, he won't do that either. So the ball game's over right now. Yes, sir. The next step says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. You know, Boys and girls, I don't think there's any alcoholic worthy of the name who is capable of taking that step by himself. I think that step needs help. The way we have lived and the kind of connivers we are and always finding 
justification for what we've done, I don't think we have. Approaching AA has the capability of taking that without help. I think our sponsor must help us with that. And I think the next step suggests that the sponsor is to help us because that step follows right in. It says we admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. The exact nature of our wrongs, the wrongs, the nature of the wrongs that we found in this inventory. This inventory doesn't suggest that we have to stand up in public and undress in public here and tell about all the sins we have committed over our life, over our lifetime. I know very few of us can do it. I know I, a lot of the most interesting things that happened to me in my drinking career I don't even remember. People have told me about. And so I couldn't, obviously I couldn't, if that meant that, I couldn't do it. But this is talking about this inventory of characteristics and things that we've done, moral things. Step five it tells us about admitting it to God and to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of the wrongs, not what we did, the nature of them. Step six goes along, says we were entirely ready. Get that word entirely. Being extremists, we need that word in there. We were entirely ready. Ready for what? It says we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Why him? We're, in, we're incapable of removing them ourselves, that's why. So we're entirely ready to have God remove all all these defects of character. There's some defects of character I prefer to keep. And don't tell me you wouldn't. It doesn't say that in the program. It says all of them. Entirely ready. Step seven, it says, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. We humbly asked him humbly asked him. You know, I recall when I was a drinking alcoholic, i get into some kind of a jam. I'd say, oh God, get me out of this mess. I'll never do this again. I'll never run out with Sadie Glutz again. I'll be a good boy. Say, just get me out of this deal. I'm an opportunist. Making a deal with God. Those things don't work. It's no good. It says we humbly asked him. That's it. No deal. So that's so much for the submission of our wills and our lives to the care of God. Our next phase includes step eight and nine. The phase of restitution. And here's a, a phase that unfortunately a lot of people treat very lightly. And it's awfully important. We have to clean up the past without harming someone else. We have to go out and make our apologies for things we've done. Ask forgiveness where we can. It says here, we made a list of all persons we had harmed. Now get this last part of it. And we became willing to make amends to them all. That willingness to make amends to all of them. That's what's important in that step. The next step, it says, we made amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Don't give us any latitude to crawl over other people and harm other people in trying to vindicate ourselves and clean our own consciences. Can't do that. People who we have to make amends to and can't, we must leave that to God. 
we must ask him to help us with that. Now, when making restitution is not easy, and unless the fellow means business, he won't do this, because if we got too much fear in our hearts, we won't do it. And there are people we don't want to face. And some of my restitution moves were some of the roughest things I had to do. But I had to do them. I was taught that. And I'm glad I was given the help to do it. I did. But it's important. Now our next phase is the step 10, 11, and 12. The phase of construction. We have admission, submission, restitution. Now we have construction. This is construction of our lives. 10th, 11th, and 12th steps. Very important steps, too. They're all important. Take this 10th step. It's one of the vital parts of our program because it's something we deal with every day. It says we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. Brother, when in the world did we ever admit we were wrong? The alcoholic who's always on the defensive He's always justifying himself. Try this sometime if you haven't yet. Try it when you get an argument with your folks at home or folks where you work or wherever. And you know darn well you're all wet, but you're going to argue black is white because you don't want to be on the losing end. So just say sometime, oh, Joe, I'm, I'm all wet. I'm all wrong. You're right. I'm wrong on this. I'm as wrong as wrong can be. See what it does for you if you've never tried this. It takes a load off of us. And the one thing that's so important that it does, it takes the alcoholic off of the defensive. The alcoholic should not be apologetic after he's passed this third phase. From that point on, we should go on the offensive. We're no longer on the defensive. Let's hold our heads up. Let's be people, real people that we are, children of God. That tenth step we live with, we take our inventory every day. Every night we think about what we've done during the day and how we could have done it better. Listen to this next step in the construction step. Here's a step that teaches us how to pray and what to pray for. Here's a tremendous step because most of us who come to AA have been away from a prayer life for so long. Like I mentioned in my talk a while ago when Doc Smith talked about praying. I know nothing about praying. He knew that. Here's how a new person, this will not affect any person whether he has a church connection or none. This he can use. It's simply written and it's a universal proposition. It teaches us how to start a prayer life. Just listen to this for a moment, how this step is worded carefully. Go home and read this step tonight if you're not accustomed to doing prayers. It says here, we sought through prayer and meditation. What did we seek? We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. That's what we're seeking. What are we praying for? Praying only knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That's our prayer step, the beginning of a prayer life. It says nothing in there about praying for sobriety. In fact, I haven't seen the word sobriety in these steps yet, have you? Nothing said about this. It says something about improving our conscious contact with God, learning how to talk to him and how to listen. That's what we're trying to do. 
We're trying to learn. We're praying for knowledge of his will. What does God want me to do? And give me the strength to carry it out. The good book tells us that there's nothing that God will put on us that he will not give us the strength to execute and carry out. That's a promise. This step doesn't tell anything about praying for a new wife, a new house, a new yacht, a new job, or a new husband, or anything like that. It doesn't say It doesn't say a word about that. Or another drink or anything. Nothing. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. That's it. I'm trying to learn how to reach him and talk to him and listen to him. That's our eleventh step. Tremendous step. Think on it. Go home and read it over tonight before you go to bed. The twelfth step. Listen to this one. The most maligned step in the whole caboodle. You hear about 12 step in this and 12 step in that and 13 step this and 14 step that. What is all this stuff about 12 step? What does a 12 step actually require? What does it say? Listen carefully. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, it infers that we have taken these other steps and something has happened to us. And what has happened? We've had a spiritual experience. What is a spiritual experience? Does that frighten anyone here? A spiritual experience is a change, a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change all the way through. You're a new person. If any man be in Christ, he's a new person, a new creature. That's what it means. You're new. This 12 step. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of taking these steps. What happens then? We tried, it says, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics. And to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now that don't say anything about sitting up all night holding some guy's hand. Financing a drunk for some ape. They come to the wrong boy when they ask me to finance their drunks for them. I'll buy a guy a drink, yeah. And I'll uh, taper a guy off and help him if he needs that. But I'm not out there as an errand boy or a, or a bellhop or a lot of guys that want to maintain a drunk on my expense. Believe me, I'm too bloody cheap for that in the first place and a little smarter than that in the second place. No, we learn these things as time. I don't say I've never been taken, but I'm not apt to be very much anymore. A burned baby is afraid of fire. But this step tells us that we have gone through something here and something's happened to us and now we are to serve. We are trying to carry this message to other alcoholics and we are trying to practice these principles in all of our affairs. That's our program. It's a foolproof program if we accept it. There's such a thing as being in AA and not of it. There's, something, there's such a thing as joining AA and not accepting it. It's a matter of accepting this program. If we want recovery, this is the program. If we don't, if you've got something better, Lord love you. Go take it, but leave us alone. 
This is our program. If you've got something better, go out and name it BB or CC. This is AA. And don't confuse us. Now. Well, I think I'll have to close this up the next 40 minutes so I think you can spin downstairs. There's only one thing more I want to say. That's our program. And this is a program that's of constant improvement. And there's three areas in our life that we have to pay attention to once we accept this program, once we go through this program and accept it as such, then we have to be concerned with three things. We have to improve ourselves mentally, morally, and spiritually. Those are the things we have to strive for the rest of our lives. We're not going to be we're not going to be perfect. There isn't any of us who don't fail and fail and fall down and get up again. But getting up and trying, that's important. We never have to drink again. We're not going to be perfect in our behavior and in our moral pattern because we're human. When something happens, we have to find forgiveness for it. We have to forgive one another. We have to forgive ourselves. We have to ask God's forgiveness every day for things we do. Because we're living in such a society that it's inevitable that we'll do wrong. And people aren't so made that it's easier to do wrong than do right. That's the way human beings are made. It's a struggle to do right. So that's why you and I have to carry this torch. We have to improve ourselves every day, mentally, morally, and spiritually. It's been grand talking to you all. I hope you all come down and visit us in St. Pete sometime. I'd like to see you all around. Thank you much. <laughs>